If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Should we all right now cancel traditional Thanksgiving plans? It's a big question, and it's the first we will address on this episode of This Week in the CLE the news podcast discussion from cleveland.com and the plain dealer we have a full house today i'm chris quinn and we have chris Wernowski, laura johnston jane cahoon ready to go for a good discussion welcome back chris good morning everybody howdy good morning one week till the election one week till the election wow what a trip it's been okay let's begin should we all cancel our traditional Thanksgiving plans to protect our families from the coronavirus? We have news out of Canada today that they believe a spike there came from family gatherings for Canadian Thanksgiving, which took place earlier this month. Laura Johnston, in a previous episode of this podcast, and she's Canadian, suggested that we should move Thanksgiving earlier so we could have it outside. I don't think, Laura, it worked out. What do you say? I don't think it worked out. And that was a beautiful weekend, if you can remember that. That was like a warm weekend that made sense to have it outside. I don't know how many Canadians were gathering with extended families. I do know that my family, extended family in Canada, have basically been locked down, staying in their bubble, not leaving town because Canadians have been taking this a lot more seriously. When we're saying there's a spike in cases, I want to point out Ontario had like 857 <laughs> cases yesterday. All right, all right. That <laughs> Canada's great. We all know Canada. Go Canada. But yes, here's the thing. A very good point about Thanksgiving. But but here's the thing. We we are spiking out of control and in a very frightening development. No one knows why. I mean, we've speculated on this podcast that it's because we all turn the heat on and because this thing is an aerosol, it's getting blown into our faces and getting through our masks. But we have no idea. So I'm kind of surprised that Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, who is responsible for the safety of the residents, isn't on, on just a tear of a campaign imploring people to cancel family gatherings at Thanksgiving because there's so much evidence that those family gatherings could spread it and infect people and kill them. Chris Renaski, you're just back from some days off. What do you think about family gatherings? I think if you're with your your people, you know, the people that you're st- sticking with during the pandemic, you know, go, go wild, have a turkey. But, you know, if, if you're if you're making plans to travel over state lines, you might want to reconsider it. I, you know, I mean, I know it's difficult and I know it's it's a lot to to sacrifice because we've just we haven't been. I mean, we just haven't been able to see people if, if you've you know been responsible throughout this whole process. And I and I think it's hard, you know, it's psychologically, it's, it's, it's difficult to be removed. I mean, I haven't, you know, my parents live in Florida and my brother lives in Florida and I, you know, I haven't seen them since well before, you know, we all locked down and, and pardon my French here, but it sucks. <laughs> you know, I miss, I miss yeah. my family and I, and I want to see them, you know, my, my, you know, I, I was looking at my time off calendar I have all this time off during the holidays and it's like, well, I, you know, I can't travel anywhere. I can't go see my family and I can't do this because, you know, frankly, I, I think the risk is still too high. But I, but I, 
but I, I do think, think a lot of people aren't going to do what you do. Look, I made a heartbreaking call to my daughter. I got a nine month old granddaughter and I called my daughter a week ago and canceled everything. Said, you really shouldn't come. We'll all be feel guilty as hell if, if you come up here and, and she gets sick or you get sick. And so we've canceled everything. It's, it's like going to be the most depressing holiday period of my very long life. <laughs> right. But, but, it's, but, but it's I'm surprised it's not a campaign. We... I mean, right. this, this should be a campaign. Canada does offer a lesson, even if Laura wants to downplay the numbers. <laughs> it happened. And we know it's going to happen. And yet we're, we're not getting that. You're not really getting the public campaign that could save a lot of lives and keep a lot of people healthy, basically saying don't. Hasbro reported huge sales in the third quarter for board games as parents try to shelter in place with their kids. And, you know, maybe that's what we should all do <laughs> with the people we're with, as Chris said, in our bubbles, get some board games and play some cards and just kind of get through this plague year. May I jump in here? This Dane Cahoon. Do you, how many people do you think heeded DeWine's plea to not get together and watch football over the weekend. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you that I saw a party. I think it was mostly outdoors because we could hear them cheering. But you're right. People did get together. And I asked my mom about this because it's something our family started discussing. And, and they live close by. You know, we've seen them throughout the pandemic. I'm lucky, mostly outside. And she said she's talking to friends who are renting halls to like, you know, like big meeting rooms so that they can try to socially distance Thanksgiving. But if you are inside sharing food, I'm not mm -hmm. sure how it matters if you spaced your chairs out. Well, especially if it is if it is somehow the forced air heating system that's spreading the virus. I mean, that, that, until that's debunked, until we get some evidence that's not the case, being indoors is not going to. <laughs> I just to don't think people thing. are going to listen. That that was my point. I'm sorry. I well, agree. Yeah, I agree. I think and you're I, right. You know, and I don't I don't want to bemoan this too much, but I mean, it the message is coming from the top that you know, this third surge that we're experiencing, you know, it's, it's even weird to call it a wave because we still, you know, we didn't really recede from the quote unquote second spike or whatever, but you know, I mean, you have the president calling the, this third wave of fake news conspiracy designed to, you know, ruin his election chances. And it's, you know, people are going to listen to that, whether we like right. it or not, people, that's, people listen to that. And that's, but that's the, what I'm talking about. That's why I think it's kind of incumbent on the governor. You know, he can't protect the country, but he could to Ohio just you know, implore people. Look, you're going to have some sickness. If you do this, it's I very mean, hard to keep safe. Are you talking about the same governor who was, uh, you know, lauding the, the coronavirus task force uh, run by the vice president yeah, and five people on his staff who have coronavirus now? Maybe he needs to have one, <laughs> one more of those primetime specials where he just stares at the camera and tells you, please, please wear a no, mask. But you, know, but, you know, the truth is, in every poll, every poll, his popularity is through the roof. And so even though, yeah, Jane, you're right, there are people that will ignore it. But if he were to mount that campaign, not everybody would ignore it. Some people would say, I hate to admit it and do what I did and call their relatives and say, we can't do it. We'll get together by Skype. But absent that, I think we're going to see an enormous surge in December and possibly again in January after Christmas. We'll have to see. It's this week in the CLE. This story just won't go away. 
What is the latest in the saga of John Becker, the arch conservative legislator who wants to see Governor Mike DeWine behind bars? Jane Cahoon, I can't believe there's another development in this <laughs> stupid story. As you say, the gift that keeps on giving. This is the ongoing battle that stems from Becker's effort to have, as you say, Mike DeWine uh, impeached and tried for felony crimes, including terrorism, because of the governor's actions during the coronavirus pandemic, like closing businesses and requiring face masks. Both of Becker's efforts have gone basically nowhere in the legislature or in the courts, but that hasn't stopped him. He continues to fight in an, in an Ohio appeals court to try to institute this criminal investigation of DeWine. And last week, as we've talked about before, Attorney General Dave Yost stepped in calling Becker's effort a, a waste of the legal system's resources and a political stunt and said he should be sanctioned and forced to sit through serious court proceedings so he learns something from this and so that others will be deterred from doing this. Well, that prompted Becker on Monday to file yet another brief, and he now is calling for Yost to resign, and he's asking for sanctions against the attorney general for trying to, quote, harass, intimidate, and bully him. So uh, that's that's where we stand right now. Yost, uh, a spokeswoman for Yost said, you know, when asked to comment on it, that he just started laughing. <laughs> yeah, you know, what's sad is, is that because of the gerrymandered districts in Ohio, He's probably safe as can be in his district because no no one can beat him. But this is Looney Tunes that that, that we're wasting prime administrative time during a plague year with nonsense like this, with a, a, an elected legislator trying to arrest the governor for high crimes of doing his job. It's just idiotic. And and you know I credited Yost last week for trying to to shut him down. And now he's striking out the next thing, you know, he's going to strike out at the media because we keep criticizing him and say the first <laughs> amendment needs to be put away because I, you know, how dare we criticize a legislator who's trying to do his job. All right. Well, hopefully we won't have to talk about this story again. You're listening <laughs> to the in the CLE. What does Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost mean when he says an anti-human trafficking operation called Autumn Hope is the biggest in Ohio history? Chris Ranowski, I'm always a little bit troubled by the the statements law enforcement makes about human trafficking because they never provide the backup because they can't because they're victims of sex crimes and things like that. So you never see the proof and you have to kind of take their word for it. And as I'm sure you're going to get into in a second, in the background of all this is the ridiculous QAnon conspiracy about pedophilia. So so this seems like it has legitimacy, but we can't know for sure. And so the skeptics in us question it. Right. So Yost announced that federal, state and local officials had launched what they called the largest anti-human trafficking operation in the state's history last week, uh, saying that they had rescued 154 victims and arrested 179 men for illegally soliciting sex and other crimes. Um, they've called this thing Operation Autumn Hope because they love to name things. And it involved 50 law enforcement agencies and social services groups and state and local authorities that cracked down on adult sex trafficking in Cuyahoga, Franklin, and Lucas counties, as well as people soliciting sex with children in Franklin and Mahoning counties. You know, I mean, these these sex stings, we talk about these quite a bit, or we haven't talked about these quite a bit, but but when we write about them, 
you're right. We always sort of do it with some skepticism because a lot of times they, they kind of, they fold in like routine prostitution arrests into what becomes these larger human trafficking things. And, and, and because it sounds more nefarious and it, and it sounds scary, but a lot of times this is, this is, you know, some of the run of the mill people, you know, going out and buying prostitutes and, and it turns out it's an undercover cop and, and they get arrested and, you know, they, the John gets a, a what is, I think it's usually a misdemeanor and, you know, we rarely write about it because we don't write a lot of, about misdemeanors. But during this operation, they say 109 human trafficking survivors, mostly women and mostly adults were found and referred to social service groups in um, the three main counties that we talked about. Um, simultaneously, 76 cases of missing and exploited children were cleared up and 45 kids were physically rescued. One of the missing children was a 15-year-old Cleveland girl linked to a person in Columbus suspected of human trafficking. Uh, all totaled, um, the operation was planned for several months uh, prior to it being put in action. You know, and, you know, the Rape Crisis Center said that, you know, this was this was good news for them. And they say that it likely prevented others from being harmed in, in unimaginable ways, I think was the quote. Why well, focus so, just on Cuyahoga, Franklin, and Lucas counties? Those are Democratic strongholds. But why? I mean, are they trying to say that sex trafficking only happens in northern Ohio urban centers? Um, I mean, I think you do your investigation where this happens the most. I, you know, it, it's... I don't want to say this doesn't happen in rural areas, but I, you know, I think you focus, you know, you focus where the problem is probably the greatest or, you know, you have a higher likelihood of finding the problem in a place that has a, a bigger population. Um, we were talking about this before the, the podcast started. And I think what, what really makes me skeptical about this sometimes is, is that we are, you are starting to see like mainstream nods to things like QAnon and this in the in the big the whole save the children thing which is a very difficult thing to criticize because you come off sounding like you're defending people who are are trafficking in children which is not what i'm saying what i what i worry about is is that you know we're seeing a sort of movement among attorney generals and and US attorneys and you're just seeing a lot of that news coming out right now ahead of the election. And, you know, even as, as social media starts to sort of crack down on some of the more dangerous rhetoric surrounding it. So, you know, I, I just want to say, I'm not discounting the issue of child exploitation here. It's a big problem and it's something that we need to address. We need to address, but, you know, I hope, you know, in my heart of hearts that, that, you know, this isn't being done just as a, as a signal to people that, you know, child sex trafficking is, uh, you know, only being paid attention to because of QAnon and all this stuff. So good points. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Are Northeast Ohio hospitals ready for the explosion in coronavirus cases we've been seeing in recent weeks? Lord Johnston, we've seen a trend in Ohio that after the cases spike, hospitalization spike and then death spike. So far, locally, we haven't seen the hospitalization spike, although across the state we're setting records. What do the local hospitals say about the coming storm? 
They say they're ready. They say that they have used these months since March to obtain more personal protective equipment, and they have plans to increase bed capacities should they need it. They have best practices for treating patients. They know more about the disease, so they don't have as many people that are going to the ICU and need to be put put on a ventilator, which remember back in the spring, there was a huge concern about how many ventilators we had. So like, for example, University Hospitals now has a 500-day supply of PPE on hand. That's the masks, the gowns, the equipment to keep people safe. The only thing they're saying they have tough time getting is the testing, particularly chemical reagents for those tests. But everything else they say they're, they're set up, as you remember, like the clinic used the entire place that we ended up using for the de- presidential debate was a hospital. Nobody ended up using the spaces they had set up as like overflow hospitals, but they could all say they can all ramp up their bed space if needed. Um, Metro, for example, from 425 to 1,000. So they haven't needed it, but they say they're really prepared. What always strikes me about this is how close you are to the margin. Right now, we're we're below capacity but nobody expected to go from a thousand cases a day to twenty eight hundred and fifty on Saturday, right? So, so if this surge that we've seen over the last month continues at the rate of increase we're seeing, and the hospitalizations follow, those numbers that you're throwing around don't sound adequate enough. I mean, you think back to what happened in Italy, where they were absolutely overrun. If nobody can explain why we're seeing this surge. Nobody can say where it ends. And you've got to think that there's a possibility that our hospitals will be overrun. I mean, anything with this disease is possible, right? I'm not going to rule it out. But it does sound like they have a much better handle on what's going on. I mean, this was so new in March. And they were just, they didn't know how to treat the disease. And there was no best practices. Um, And they, you know, they were they're battling to try to get the PPE. So many companies have started manufacturing these masks. We don't have a shortage anymore. Um, and UH, for example, says that they could go from seventeen hundred beds to fifty one hundred if needed. That's a a huge increase. So also these drugs like you know that I, I have a hard time pronouncing, but Remdesivir, <laughs> they've been effective. So they are helping these patients. Doctors are concerned about what happens if there is a surge to the other non-COVID patients. Remember, we eliminated non-emergency surgeries back in the spring. So if there's a surge and they take over all the beds, then that's going to push out people who need the hospitals for other things. Although Governor Mike DeWine has said he wants to avoid that happening because he recognized that that what, what was described as elective surgeries weren't really elective surgeries. They were life-saving surgeries. We had a lot of anecdotes about people who were delayed and got became sicker because of it. We'll have to see. Well, it'll be interesting in the future to look back on this conversation where they're all confident they're ready uh, if if things get dire as they did in 1918. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With all the talk about poll watchers, who can become one in Ohio and what can they actually do? Jane Cahoon, this is an issue, partly because the president has called for an army of of people to go into the polls to find all that fraud and, and bad voting that he says is out there because the election's a sham. It's a sham. So so who are they? How do you become one? And And actually, one of the big questions I have is, are they allowed to be armed? <laughs> well, no to that question, but uh, yeah, you know, in Ohio, it's important to know 
if you, if you want to be part of President Trump's army and just show up at the polls and, you know, expect to get in there and observe, you just, you can't do that. There are very specific rules for poll watchers, which technically are called election observers in Ohio. And the Republican and Democratic parties have sent these observers to the polls for years. And this year isn't any different. But to, to be one of these observers, you have to receive an official designation from one of three types of groups. That would be a political party, uh, a group of five or more candidates, or a ballot issue campaign. And those groups are allowed to send just one observer per polling location. But first, they've got to fill out these forms, uh, providing their names and addresses, submit this to the Board of Elections for approval no later than 11 days before the voting begins. So it's really too late for, for anybody to start this process now. You have to take an oath promising you're not going to run afoul of any of the rules, which dictate that your job basically is to just observe. Anybody who's a qualified elector can do this, which means they have to be registered to vote as long as they aren't a political candidate. And interestingly, they can't be a uniformed officer, a military member, firefighters, state troopers, or organized militia members. <laughs> the state law specifically per- forbids that. But uh, to get to your question about what they can't do in addition to being armed, they're not allowed to try to enforce the law or advocate on behalf of voters. They can't handle any voting materials. They can't engage in any type of campaigning. They're not allowed to intimidate or harass or, or influence voters or election workers. They're not allowed to talk on the phone, although I guess they can go outside and, you know, make a call and uh, to their party or whoever and kind of update them. Uh, they're not allowed to record audio or, or take video, and they're not allowed to carry any uh, gun or any type of deadly weapon. So this doesn't apply, though, if I want to get my AR-15. I don't have an AR-15, but if I did, and walk around outside the polling place watching people come in. Right. These rules uh, only apply within 100 feet of a polling place. Although, like if people are in line and the line stretches beyond that 100 feet, you got to stay within at least 10 feet of of any voter. But no, outside that threshold, the, the rules and the laws are the same as as any other public place. So if I'm walking up to the polling place and and somebody that is part of Trump's army wants to accost me and question what I'm doing there. Is that legal? I, you know, it, nobody's allowed to harass you or, or interfere but they with all, your but right they to all, vote. But they all do. I mean, people are standing outside the polling place <laughs> waving at you, trying to, it's so bizarre to me that they try and influence your vote as you're walking in. Cause I think most people, by the time they're walking in, know exactly who they're voting for. So, yeah. so there's, there's a line somewhere, right? It's legal right. for me and to stand be, there and right. say, vote for, vote for Smith, vote for Smith. <laughs> Is it legal for somebody with an IR-15 to come up to me and, and ask me what I'm doing there. Right. I, I think you'd say there has to be a difference between somebody waving a piece of literature at you, asking you to vote for somebody, and somebody, an armed person, you know, trying to intimidate you. 
I get, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if any of that happens and whether authorities are called. I'm sure police will be on alert for any kind of nonsense like that. We'll have to see. Interesting uh, rules. And inside, the poll watchers, can they walk up to me to talk to me or do they just have to stand in the corner and watch people vote? They're just supposed to observe. I I don't think they're allowed to even interact with, with voters at all. Okay. Good to know. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are six new houses planned for Cleveland's Huff neighborhood significant? Chris Ranowski, I got I to gotta disclose, this is a project of Sheila Wright. I go back a ways with Sheila Wright. She and I were in Leadership Cleveland together. I think she's one of the great souls of Cleveland, and, and I think this project is interesting. That's why we're talking about it. So what's it about? Right. So uh, six houses are set to go up in the east side neighborhood. And while it, it seems like a relatively modest development, it's actually sort of part of, of Sheila and some other folks sort of grand vision for, um, you know, Midtown and that part of the east side. Um, the, the development that they're currently working on is called Allen Estates, which is named after uh, Carolyn Watts Allen and Robert Allen, who both built homes in the Huff neighborhood. Uh, back in the 1990s and were advocates for that that part of the city. And these homes are all set to be owned by Black residents. And Wright and her business partner, Angela Bennett, who make up frontline development, are planning to move in and other homeowners are already lined up. The prices for these homes are still undetermined, but the aim is to, is to make it affordable um, for average citizens, which is, has been an issue, I think, with a lot of you know, real estate development within the city. So um, it's it's the first uh, real estate project for Wright, known for her, like, as you noted, her philanthropic and and civil rights work in Cleveland. But she aims to sort of make it the 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 starting point to improve that neighborhood, which has kind of suffered from crime and issues of poverty. You know, if if people are sort of uninitiated with Huff, it was the center of a very significant civil rights upheaval back in the 1960s, and to sort of see you know, investment going back into a a historic black community in Cleveland is, is good news. Yeah. And this is near league park, which was Mm -hmm. rebuilt the famous old baseball park where Babe Ruth played. And, and it's close enough to the midtown area where the new grocery store is and some other things where, where you can see critical mass building. And if you can get enough residents back in there, that neighborhood could thrive. So it's a it's a visionary thing. She's working with the councilman there, Bashir Jones, who's pretty excited about it, too. Be interesting to see how this goes. We wish her the best. It's this week in the CLE. Why did hundreds of alumni and students at Laurel School sign a petition about racism? And what do they want the school to do about it? Jane Cahoon, you don't often see this at these hoity-toity schools in the suburbs. Uh, this, is, this is a pretty dramatic development, there's a lot of anger. um, And really, the anger comes through by the alumni, by the students about some things going on there. Although it does feel like they're being a bit draconian with the students who are doing bad things. Yeah. So this just in part, I mean, it brought up a lot of things, but in part, it stems from an incident in September when this Instagram video spread around of a student using a a racial slur. The school ended up suspending the student, investigating, and then eventually did not permit her to return to school. But the the people who signed the petition, there were um, 226 alumni and 37 current students. They felt that the administration didn't handle the case appropriately, you know, with enough transparency or speed. And they think it's just kind of the latest occurrence that that shows a history 
of racism issues at the school. So they presented this petition that one of the things it asks for is to stop placing a burden on students of color at the school to to always turn to them and ask them for advice on every situation involving race. It says the administration should be able to solve these problems without stressing out kids about this and always bringing them into it. Uh, and then there are several other demands, including, you know, expulsion for saying the N-word as a racial slur, um, although some who signed the petition, you know, are pose alternative punishments for that but but you know that uh, but that that's what seems so severe you know the whole juvenile court system is based on the philosophy that kids make mistakes and and while they need to be punished for them it's about rehabilitation and i i was just surprised at the complete zero tolerance for a kid doing something bad i mean you know clearly using racial slurs bad you don't want your student body to do it but they're kids and, and so right. You know, isn't that the teaching moment? Isn't that something that you work to to change instead of just saying, oh, you said that word, you're gone. We're throwing you out. I, I was just a little bit surprised at how severe. Uh, this yeah, the, the head of the school pointed out that, you know, they they're not in the business of public shaming. They they needed to investigate this and, you know, not just have a a knee-jerk reaction. She didn't use that word, but you know, that, that uh, they, they need to protect the students' privacy and dignity, even when they're in trouble and they do something stupid like this. Anyway, the, the administrators said they are, you know, open to this feedback uh, from the people who signed the petition. And they point out there's been a lot of work going on, like a, um, They've, they've selected somebody to work with staff and faculty on diversity training over the summer. They have a committee for equity and inclusion, and they have a diversity director. And the, the head of school said, you know, she really doesn't want a student to ever feel burdened that she's responsible for educating adults on these issues. And she's sorry that they felt that way, that that they try to be conscious of not burdening things and they, they, they try to approach things in a collaborative way. And that's maybe what led to that. So, but as you said, there are a lot of issues that came out over this of, of students of color, you know, have feeling isolated or, you know, that they, they're not treated properly. Oh, I mean, I, I just, I have a quick question. Does, has the school ever said as a response to the story, how, like the the racial breakdown of its student body. Like, do we have any sense of just how, like, what the what the breakdown is between white, black, and Latin, you know Latino students there? It's the story just said it's mostly white. I don't think we had a number. Yeah, it's predominantly white, yeah. and they do have student groups for black, indigenous, and and people of color. You know, but yeah, they didn't they didn't provide the breakdown. Okay, okay, it's this week in the CLE. That does it for another episode. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Wednesday, and I'm sure we'll be talking about whatever Mike DeWine has to say in his coronavirus briefing. 